Welcome to Tales from the Rabbit Hole. I'm your host, Vic West. My guest today is Professor David Keith. Professor Keith has been a target of conspiracy theorists, and the reason is that he is a professor who is an expert in geoengineering, also known as climate engineering. Geoengineering is the science of deliberately modifying the climate of the Earth by doing things like spraying things into the upper atmosphere. At the moment, it's a very theoretical science because really nothing's been done yet. But that it hasn't stopped the conspiracy theorists who think that the chemtrails conspiracy theory is actually about covert geoengineering. A couple of terminology points. We talk about radiative forcing. That's the difference between incoming and outgoing heat on the planet. And it's what the carbon dioxide greenhouse effect modifies. And it's also what we would try to modify by doing some kind of geoengineering to reflect more heat back into space, for example. We also talk about Arctic methane. These are large deposits of methane, which is a very powerful greenhouse gas in the Arctic. And there's a concern that this might all melt rather rapidly and cause a kind of runaway global warming. Some people have been quite apocalyptic in their predictions of this Arctic methane, and that's been seized upon by the conspiracy theorists as being some kind of rationale for a secret geoengineering chemtrails program. We discuss all these things with Professor David Keith. So, uh, Professor David Keith, uh, welcome to Tales from the Rabbit Hole, and thank you very much for being here. Thanks. Great to be here. Pleasure. Okay, so you are the uh, Professor of Applied Physics at Harvard. And you were also one of the founders of uh, Carbon uh, Engineering. And uh, you are the head of the, uh, the Keith Group at Harvard. Well, that, that doesn't mean anything other than I'm a professor at Harvard. So, so okay, a, well, it sounded very impressive at, to me. <laughs> I'm a professor at, at the Kennedy School of Government okay. and also in engineering. And in engineering and sciences at, at Harvard and most other big science faculty, we just call individual people's... Um, research groups by the name of the person um mm-hmm. that's just standard it doesn't mean anything right okay uh all right so uh you the reason i'm talking to you and the reason i invited you on the podcast is that tales on the rabbit hole is about people who have been affected by conspiracy culture and you are one of the people i think who uh whose name comes up most often in terms of targets of people who are interested in the chemtrail conspiracy theory and the chemtrail conspiracy theory kind of focuses around the idea that uh, trails being sp- sprayed out of planes are some kind of secret form of geoengineering, which is altering the climate. And this, of course, is your uh, principal area of research, uh, geoengineering. Your your history of geoengineering goes back a long way, back to uh, 92, I think, is when you had your first paper published on the subject. Yeah, I think that's right. I got interested in climate uh, in the late 80s. And I think I began to work on geoengineering among other topics, sort of around 89, probably. Okay. Uh, When did you first become aware of this kind of strange intersection between your work and this uh, chemtrail slash covert geoengineering conspiracy theory? That's a good question. I don't think I remember that well. I should have uh, looked through my email inbox beforehand. But I would say more than 10 years ago, but certainly in the 2000s. I feel like I didn't see it much before that, but I, I could be wrong. I, I actually just don't remember. Yeah, you think it kind of gradually kind of crept into your consciousness, perhaps, because it was perhaps not that big of a thing at first. Well, it was 
it felt pretty big pretty early. I mean, it certainly felt pretty mm. big sort of 10 years ago. Um, uh, but I think it wasn't, I don't remember seeing this much in the 90s. But um, yeah, I don't remember there was stuff that was sort of deliberately targeting me or things that were, you know, using using my words or speeches edited somehow to to in part of the, the conspiracy culture world. So I think that's more recent, really the last decade. Yeah, I was just looking through some of the stuff that uh, on you on YouTube and uh, you you did a TED talk back in 2007. Uh, which yeah. was just basically lay, laying out, you know, the, the type of things that you've been researching yeah. and the possibility of doing a, a climate engineering in the future. Yep. And the comment stream on that is still, even though the, the, it was published in 2007, there's comments from last week of oh, people wow. saying that, uh, yeah. uh, you know, you are destroying the world and things like that. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I think there's been a kind of a constant, uh, constant stream of people commenting on that one video since 2007. Which is uh, which is quite quite impressive. You published the book A Case for Climate Engineering uh, mm-hmm. in 2013, approximately, and yep. I remember you you went on the uh, Colbert Report at the time, yep. and uh, I remember something strange. It seemed very strange to me. It happened at the end of that uh, discussion with Stephen Colbert, is that at the end he actually made a joke about chemtrails, yeah. which I th- I thought it, it kind of took the wind out of all the good points that you'd been making up to that point. How did you feel about that when that happened? I was really pissed off about it. And I talked to him afterwards and I actually had a really thoughtful conversation with him in the, in the, in the green room afterwards, which yeah made me actually think what a smart, interesting guy he is. Um, I, I think his attitude is make fun of anything. Uh, and that's his job. Um, and I think my view was that, the way he did it tended to lend credence to that point of view in a way that I thought was destructive um, and that he didn't do it in a way that kind of made fun of the conspiracy theorists in a way that I thought was effective. So I, I, I was kind of disappointed in that, but, you know, yeah. big deal. Yeah, I, I, I was also a bit disappointed as well. I, when I watched that that uh, episode, I thought that, uh, you know, you made a lot of very good points and he didn't uh, he didn't really help with just kind of turning the whole thing into a joke at the end. Well, I mean, his job is to make each interview a bit of a joke. So making the whole idea a joke, I think, is kind of kind of okay. That's what his show's yeah. stuff is. But um, I felt like throwing on the chemtrail conspiracy theory was, was, from my point of view, a bad thing. But on the other hand, you know, I guess he would argue he's, in that show, was trying to pretend to be a right-wing nut job. And so maybe it was consistent. Who knows? Right. Yeah, and you talked about a few things in that show that I think have kind of become uh, or, or always were kind of talking points with these conspiracy theorists. And one of those was about, uh, you know, essentially how many people would die. Uh, and I was just talking to a, cons- a Kentrell conspiracy theorist uh, the other day, and he was saying that you were said that the projections for a certain type of geoengineering is that if you did this, then 10,000 people would die directly because of this. Uh, this type of geoengineering test, some kind of stratospheric uh, aerosol injection of uh, sulfur dioxide or something like that. But, you know, my point to him was that this is uh, balanced out by the people who wouldn't die. Now, do you remember the, what, what point you were making there with uh, with that, like how many people are actually going to die? And you know, is it, uh, how is it balanced? So I don't remember specifically what I okay. said, but the point that I was trying to make is at least, for me in that interview and many others, I've been trying to avoid um, 
you know, really trying to emphasize the risks of solar geoengineering and avoid overselling it. And so I think it's important to emphasize specific risks we know about. And for sulfuric acid in the stratosphere, one of the things we, we for sure know about is that some that's all going to come down eventually to a lower atmosphere, and it'll be aerosol, like the sulfur aerosol that's already there. So we put roughly a little less now, but we're putting 50 million tons a year of sulfur in the lower atmosphere um, uh, from from fossil fuel combustion, and so it would be adding to that. And we have you know pretty good understanding of the link, epidemiological link between um, particulate matter, so-called PM 2.5, mm-hmm. and and air pollution. So you can at least kind of crudely think about what the total direct risks would be. And I mean, you know, long after that interview, we've actually now published papers where we've looked in some detail about exactly how big that risk is, and it's actually. Kind of interesting because you can calculate the direct risk from particles that actually make it down, you know, from that particular kind of geoengineering, which of course might not be used with a particular level, which might not be used. You can calculate that direct risk, and it's um, you know for reasonable scenarios, it's actually quite a bit under ten thousand a year, more like a few thousand. Mm-hmm. But it's important to say that it actually turns out to be that that number small compared to other indirect changes in in air pollution mortality that actually go in both directions. It actually turns out to be quite confusing because there's some effect of effectively reducing, reversing climate change. So climate change um, interacts with air pollution in ways that make some pollutants worse and some better. And so hmm. when you partially reverse climate change, you reverse those changes and those indirect effects turn out to be bigger than the direct effect. So it's kind of, uh, you know, that small amount is kind of lost in the noise of all these different uh, ups and downs. Certainly is pretty small, but you can argue, and it would be very small, we think, compared to the, you know, what would appear to be the benefits of reduced, say, um, deaths from heat stress that would come from climate change. But again, you know, this is not a, you know, on on your debate, I think we're not trying to debate here exactly the merits of solar geoengineering. I think the the question is the way this has been picked up in this conspiracy culture is this kind of data point that seems to be unmoored from reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a big challenge uh, explaining these things to people. You know, I, I, I spend a lot of time trying to explain things to people and they will point to things like, you know, you said a certain thing, like a, a famous thing is that, uh, you know, something that goes back to, your paper in 2000, the geoengineering of the climate history and prospects, you talk about the moral hazard yeah. uh, a problem of geoengineering. And then in a talk that you gave, you yeah, yeah. you said it wasn't moral, so, wasn't so much a moral hazard. hazard you talking about hazard. For grandkids, yes. Anonymous point of view, I think is actually correct, but it's really funny. Then all these conspiracy theorists think that I'm somehow saying it's a good thing for people to free ride on their grandkids, which is obviously the opposite of what I actually think. And and this is where you can just tell that these people are either not trying or they're not honest because, you know, a, a, a very short look at other stuff I've said would make clear what the context was. Um, but, but moral hazard is, you know, when some potentially risk-reducing technology increases people's uh, taking on other risks. And especially you think about it in terms of, say, you know, flood insurance encourages people to build in floodplains, let's say. And with solar geoengineering, the issue is really about the future. It's about that maybe solar geoengineering, if it reduces climate risks, will encourage people to do more emissions, and those emissions will put more risks to the future. And and that's really talked about as free riding, meaning getting the benefits without paying the costs in, in economist terms off the future, which is broadly the problem of climate change. So, I mean, the, the whole problem of CO2 emissions is from an economist's point of view, free riding on your grandkids. Yes. 
but how do you get that across to people? Because it's uh, uh, the problem is they don't listen to the longer the longer explanations that you give. They kind of go by the uh, uh, the, well, the sound bites. I mean, presumably many of those people are not interested. I mean, this gets the bigger question of why people think this. Why you get endless? Mm. I get you know tons of emails, and I respond to some almost daily. That, you know, the ones that are sort of seem like polite and reasonable or people are just completely convinced that the sky looks different than it used to and that there are, you know, these persistent contrails that weren't there before. And um, it's really extraordinary because people's conviction seems very high and there's no evidence at all, unless of contrary evidence. It's just bizarre. You've been talking to people like this, uh, conspiracy theorists, for a long time. I remember you did a, a meeting with the uh, We Are Change Calgary yeah, uh, like about ten years ago now, I think. Yeah. Uh, have you had any success in uh, converting people? Have, have people come to you years later and said this conversation has helped? For sure, um, uh, I've had not frequently, but but I mean a substantial number of times in email exchanges, I've had people say they're sorry um, because sometimes people, you know, people will send these very aggressive emails like, you know, you fucking monster, I hope you die, and I say. Well, you know, I never respond aggressively. I say, well, what makes you inclined to write an email like that? And do you want to live in a world where people write emails like that? And why why do you hate so much? And and some of these people, I think, are Christians. And then they kind of realize uh, that what they're doing is extraordinarily unchristian and, and doesn't represent a world that presumably anybody would like to live in. And so I respond back saying, you know, you, you, I'm a regular citizen with kids, and why why would you write this about me? So I do get people um, apologizing for tone, for sure, and I get and I have dialogues where it's clear that people do seem to have changed their minds, or even clearly have changed their minds about chemtrails. Yes. Yeah, I think one of the things about you is that they portray you as a monster, uh, which yeah, is yeah. you know a terrible thing, and yet if they were to read your book, like you you lay out your own background and you, you're, you're kind of an environmentalist. You, you like being in the outdoors. You, uh, you go camping and things like that. And you're obviously a very big fan of the environment and you seem like a very nice guy. Well, that's true, but that, but that doesn't necessarily. So, so what's really interesting, I feel like there's, I mean, first of all, I think the chemtrails conspiracy from what I can tell, and there's some polling data that we've, we've done some of it mm -hmm. is both changed over time. I feel like it, it used to be that they would latch on to solar geoengineering, but the, but my impression could be wrong. We don't have good polling data was that um, the theories were more linked to mass extermination or mind control and, and solar geoengineering was kind of just a part of it. Yeah. And um, now what's interesting is at least some people in the conspiracy culture around chemtrails actually sound like, in a sense, saying reason things about governance of solar geoengineering, except for the fact that it's not happening yet. So there's right. like you could almost see some of them morphing into kind of quite legitimate and sensible opposition to deployment of solar geoengineering, which I think is a completely reasonable thing to be opposed to. Um, uh, so it, it, it's kind of interesting the way it's moving. And the other issue is is the left right divide. So yeah, I'm a I'm a environmentalist lefty. So presumably, if you're an environmentalist lefty, the fact that I am makes you feel more kinship and so on. But lots of people are actually hard right in the chemtrails world. It may actually be about equal, but for the hard right ones, the environmentalism that I have is in no way. It's a sign that I'm. It's just a sign of my my. Yeah, uh, you're, you're a communist. So those people often believe that. that well, or I think I think yeah, or I think there's another show which I think I respect. So I think to the extent that that people on the right legitimately 
don't want to see an extension of state power and don't want to see a reduction in individual rights, they view international environmental controls as a bad thing, a priori. And so it is in fact true that to solve the climate problem, we need stronger international laws around CO2. Forget geoengineering. I mean, it's true for geoengineering too, but it's true for just regular CO2 emissions reductions. And so I think part of the opposition to um, belief in climate change or willingness to take it seriously from that part of the right is a sense that believing in climate change necessarily means believing in certain kinds of internationalism and government control that um, uh, they think is overrated or they don't like. Yeah, because you know, what you're doing obviously would require a lot of cooperation. I mean, you know, a lot yeah. of the people who are conspiracy theorists, their fear is that there's going to be a one world government, that there is some kind of you know, some Illuminati, New World Order, uh, United Nations taking over the world and geoengineering yeah. kind of in a way relies upon, uh, you know, at least international cooperation yeah. uh, to a degree that they don't like. So uh, geoengineering research, a lot of people that I talk to in the conspiracy community kind of assume that there's already geoengineering going on. Uh, can you say what the actual state is of geoengineering, specifically solar geoengineering? Uh, sure, I can say, but also we've you know published in this website. So I mean, there's yeah, um, you know, at this point sort of like 500 scientific papers, which means that um, scientists and academics and research institutes around the world have sat around their offices and written papers. And there's people have run climate models, and um, there've been some laboratory experiments, and there've been a couple outdoor experiments. The most you know, clear-cut outdoor experiment, probably something called EPEACE, Eastern Pacific Regional Experiment, done by some folks at um, at um, uh, uh, Scripps Institute. Um, it was releasing a kind of uh, smoky f- smoke, basically, into marine clouds to see the effect mm-hmm. on cloud whitening. Um, and so that's, that's the state of what there is. Uh, and the number of kind of really active researchers who are spending a good fraction of their time on solar geoengineering is probably, I don't know, 20? 30 worldwide with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of researchers who are interested in the topic. And there's, um, you know, not even remotely close to developing hardware for deployment, let alone deployment. I mean, that gets into the whole, the parts of this are just, you know, insane in the sense that people think that, that these contrails are seeing our geoengineering, but the kind of geoengineering that we're talking about wouldn't make contrails and wouldn't Mm. be at that altitude. It wouldn't even look like that. So there's sort of this total disconnect. And the other part of this connect is some people say they're researchers. I mean, most prominently probably Naomi Wolf, who, you know, insists that she's a researcher. But like two days of research around a few research groups would easily show to a pretty high degree of certainty that there was no big conspiracy. I mean, and she keeps wanting to, to talk to me. I think that's probably for her own benefit or ego or something. If you really wanted to check and you actually doubted, you know, thought I might be lying, you wouldn't waste your time talking to me. What you do is go interview a bunch of people around the research groups, like around my group at Harvard, people who weren't me, mm. people who might, you think, not like me, who'd be likely to right, say, yes. <laughs> because if the theory is that there's some big secret, then the issue would be to find out. And universities are extraordinarily open places. So it's very easy to walk into our group and just ask questions. Um, and I don't think anybody's ever tried to do that. And that yeah. gives sense to me that at some level, people must just like saying this, but they can't be serious. If you were really waking up in the morning and you truly thought there was a conspiracy that threatened the lives of millions 
and you were taking it really seriously, surely you would have the energy to go, you know, collaborate with some people and do some real research, which doesn't mean looking at the sky and taking vague pictures of things that more or less look the same as any other thing. Mm-hmm. It means actually, you know, going to do some digging in the places where people are purported to be doing this and seeing if they're seem to be concealing things, making inconsistent statements. You know, they, there's lots of digging you could do. You could obviously talk to people. You could go poke around our offices and look for concealed things that there wouldn't be hard to do. And, and I don't think I've never had any sense that there's interest in the chemtrails community in actually trying to really investigate. Yeah. That's fascinating. Cause you know, like you say, universities are very open. You can just basically walk into uh, like most well, universities and go and talk to people. I, I mean, it's so, it's so much true. That it's almost impossible to keep things secret at universities. I think one of the ways I find the chemtrail, you know, that, that people, so when I try to talk to people about why it, it's implausible that there actually is large-scale use of chemtrails, it's I don't say to people, government is good, you should trust us, or academics are good, you yeah. should trust us. I assume you should start from a position of no trust. But what you should assume is that individual people have a strong motivation to speak out. So you know, if, if there really were chemtrails, and there really were as many chemtrails as people say, there'd have to be a huge industry involving thousands, tens of thousands of people who were like loading equipment. And those people would all be, I mean, a few of them would be the masters of the universe, but most of them would just be regular American citizens who would Mm -hmm. be highly incented to tell if they believed their government was doing something nefarious. Um, And of course, you know, the argument would be, well, they'd be, you know, the, 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 the government has security resources that would put a bullet in their head if they did. But we know from history that in practice, it's extraordinarily hard to keep secrets in governments, in open societies, even closed ones. I mean, after all, in World War II, in the most important secret we had, which was the specific design of the implosion lenses of the plutonium device, Mm -hmm. the Russians had the sketches of the design before the test. You just don't keep secrets very well. You can yeah, keep that operational was, uh... secrets. They can keep the operational secret of exactly when the bin Laden raid is going to happen. But you, governments just can't keep big secrets like this. And so I think people, I feel like, I, I just try to put myself in the mind of people who think this because it, it's not that you trust the government, but it's that you trust regular people to tell. And you can see how badly government leaks. So how could it be that there was this giant conspiracy wouldn't involve i mean the whole idea of academics like me is just silly if there was a conspiracy it certainly wouldn't involve people like me it would involve people in secret you know nsa style government rooms i'm i'm totally terrible at keeping secrets and i operate in a public environment but if there were a conspiracy um it would have to be really big to have that many airplanes and it would have to have a huge amount of concealment and there have to be signs I suppose some people would say that if they were doing it, perhaps they're also fooling you, David Keith, and they're, they're going around you and there's this, this kind of parallel uh, industry somehow, the military side uh, doing it. You know, is it. Is it at all conceivable that there could be some kind of underground operation doing it that you are not aware of and that the other people in the geoengineering research community are not aware of? I mean, let's say a priori, I just say it's conceivable because it's too easy to say things aren't. But but then that's the point is, okay, let's say it's happening. There needs to be a reason. So again, Mm -hmm. why do American citizens keep secrets when they believe the government actually is acting for a reasonable purpose and they believe there's a good reason? So, you know, the SEAL team in the Bin Laden raid were told not to tell and they had every reason to trust their superiors and the military chain of command and not tell because there's a coherent purpose. We get it that we wanted to capture Bin Laden. 
or, or same for other military secrets. But in this case, first of all, you've got the fact that there isn't an obvious purpose that makes any sense and that it's not a thing that, that there seems a good reason for government secrecy. So it would actually be hard to compel people not to tell. And you've got the fact that it would have to be gigantic because if it really is that many airplanes, all of which you know are part of air traffic control, all of which land in places, you'd have this huge number of people involved and they'd have to be all concealing. And, yeah. and I, I think, I think, I mean, obviously, it's not that I, I don't believe that governments sometimes do awful things. Um, so I, I do believe our governments sometimes act badly and do awful things. But I believe there's basically no record ever of a long, sustained for decades, awful thing that rec- that rec- involved, you know, tens of thousands of people that made no obvious sense which governments were able to keep secret. I think there's just there's the, the, the number of cases like that is an empty set. Yeah, in some ways you're getting into the uh, almost like a flat earth uh, territory in terms of uh, how ridiculous the, the idea of the conspiracy is. But yeah, I, of I course think people don't see that. that far off flat earth. That is, that is I, think, I think, I guess it would take more, I mean, I think it's, it's right up there with faking the moon landings for sure. Yeah. And in some ways, faking the moon landing seems easier to believe because now it's kind of lost in history and you can't talk to very many people who are directly there. But for this, you know, for this to be real, I think so many people just aren't thinking about it. If there were that many airplanes, I'm looking up at the sky now, there aren't actually any contrails. But if there were that many airplanes doing it, um, y- y- those airplanes have to get loaded with materials. There has to be a yeah. supply chain. And this is in a pretty open society. I don't understand how people think this, except. I mean, except for the obvious, that people like to feel like they're in on a secret. They like – there's lots of reasons why people like conspiracies. And I think that the, the answer is people like conspiracies and they're actually not motivated to try and figure them out. Otherwise, they wouldn't be conspiracy believers. Yeah, I think a lot of people feel like they like saving the world in a way. Like they feel that they are uh, – uh, you know, they feel like they're, like they're doing the right thing because they're convinced yeah. that, uh, that you know, they have their – the facts on their uh, their side, but of course they don't. But because they're so strongly motivated, it's very very difficult to get things across to them. Like there's some practical things you can do. Like you know, you you're working on various uh, theoretical forms of geoengineering. What would they actually look like if they were so, deployed? Yeah, a good in question. The sky? Let's work our way up. So if you're talking marine cloud brightening, um, mm. you know the classic idea has always been these ships. I think it's actually not clear whether ships or low-flying aircraft would end up being better, um, but it would be either low-flying aircraft or flying a kind of kilometer altitude and frequently dipping down the water to pick up water, kind of mm. uh, water bomber style, uh, you know, firefighting water bomber style, or it would be ships, you know, that were making big, uh, uh, faint, hazy clouds of, of this sea salt aerosol, and they'd be very specific ships with obvious labels and. You know, wouldn't be hard to tell they were there. Um, and again, remember how open the world is now. There's independent third-party knowledge of where basically all ships are now from the right. global satellite places, and it's used for lots of reasons. So at this point, it's almost impossible for governments to lie about it because the satellite, the independent parties know where things are. Um, and likewise, of course, for aircraft, because aircraft are on ACARs and other systems. Anyway, so that would be for Marine Cloud Brighton. For cirrus thinning i'm going up in altitude for cirrus thinning i think we really don't know so well but my guess is it would be small remotely piloted aircraft 
bigger than a little photodrome, but you know maybe things with a wingspan of a few meters, um, mm. because the, the mass material really tiny, and they'd be you know flying in some kind of grid-like way, and they'd be I would guess kind of invisible from the ground or invisible without really special um, equipment. Um, they'd have to have um, uh, uh, transponders. They have to be visible in air traffic control to be safe. And they have to be places where they were flying from, but they wouldn't leave a visible trail. There's no, mm -hmm. no visible trail involved at all for, for, um, for serious thinning. And, um, and they'd be very small aircraft. And then for stratospheric aerosols, which is, you know, I think most researchers think is sort of the most plausible large scale method of solar geoengineering, you'd have aircraft flying in the stratosphere and they'd be releasing either a gas, SO2, or, um, or, or H2SO4 aerosols, or, um, or some kind of solid aerosols like calcium carbonate or whatever it was. And um, those would be, first of all, they'd be obviously look pretty different from other aircraft because they'd be flying twice as high. So hmm. it's significantly harder to see them. Things just look yes. different. You see by how the aircraft. They wouldn't make anything that looked like regular contrails because they're up there in the warm stratosphere. You don't make contrails in the stratosphere. So basically, if you're seeing a contrail like that, it's not the stratosphere. Uh, mm. It's not the stratosphere. Um, I guess I've never really done the calculations. I think in some of those things, like releasing SO2 gas, there'd be no visible trail at all. In other things like um, solid aerosols or H2SO4, I guess there would be, but I've never tried to calculate how visible it would be. But it sure as heck would not look like a contrail. A persistent because especially the the contrails that the it's so funny actually i've never thought about this the thing that the conspiracy theorists most think are evidence of the conspiracy is actually most evidence of that it's not true because because what what they really seem to think is really weird are persistent contrails that have these mm -hmm. long like if there's a linear feature with the contrail they have these stripes that come out sideways and this weird shearing and we have, of right. course understand lots about what that is that the mechanisms of persistent contrail formation and those mechanisms none of them operate that way in the stratosphere so stratospheric solar geoengineering wouldn't look at all like that that's very true because you just get just turbulent mixing and you wouldn't want to get the uh different uh, aerodynamic effects doesn't mix turbulently uh except yeah it looks quite different initially we're actually doing computational fluid dynamic simulations right now huh. so we could actually like this year i suppose i haven't thought about that it might be kind of a fun paper we could simulate what the optical look of a stratospheric aerosol release would be i've never done it um it wouldn't be that it hard be. It'd be kind of fun, and I'm confident it would look completely different from persistent contrails. That would be very interesting because I think you know it's it's a valid point, you know, regardless, because people are going to be concerned about you know what are these planes going to look like, uh, yeah. even if they don't believe in the the contrail theory. Yeah, the the planes would would look different from conventional planes because they'd have a higher aspect ratio wings, that is, longer, thinner wings. Right. So if you've ever seen the e, ER two U two aircraft, for example. They'd, yeah. you know, like a bigger ver version of that, basically, you know, presumably with a couple engines, but but long, thin wings. So would it be safe to say, like to make the statement that uh, nothing has ever been sprayed out of a plane in furtherance of geoengineering deliberately? Mm, that, I mean, for research. So, so I mean, that this there is a published paper by a Russian group that did release material a helicopter from a helicopter yes yeah i don't know of something well the, uh, the ricky cloud Lohman, brightening or ricky Lohman at um 
uh, Ricky Lohman at ETH has, has, I think, released some aerosols from drones. Mm. Um, and I don't know if the MCB... Ex- I'd either I'm not quite sure. I wouldn't want to absolutely say no because maybe right. one case. Right. So hardly any, uh, basically, yeah. just like one or, one or two cases. cases. One or two cases ever. Yeah. Yeah, because I just want to be clear for people, like, they know what the actual extent of the research is, that you, know, you haven't really got to the stage of actually doing these experiments in the air. No. I mean, we, we are, as, you know, as, as, as you and your, some of your viewers will know, I'm involved in something called the Stratospheric Controlled Perturbation Experiment. Frank Coich is the lead. And we you know, expect to do engineering flights within about the next six months. We don't know. There's an advisory committee will be publicly announced in a few weeks. And then mm-hmm. we depend on that advisory committee before we can fly. But, but that thing would be a high-altitude balloon, which would leave an invisible trail. And the balloon would be not noticeable by not, – not casually noticeable from, from the ground, although they can be visible in some conditions. And how much would you actually be spraying? A kilogram or so of material. Like total for the whole experiment yeah. or once or twice? Yeah. Or, yeah. Where, right. yeah, so it's really uh, you know, almost almost nothing really compared yeah, yeah, to... Uh, yeah, no, we yeah. we have calculated... I mean, it turns out that regular aircraft, <clears throat> commercial aircraft, um, release sulfur because there's sulfur in the aviation. Mm-hmm. And you can calculate the percentage of sulfur in the aviation fuel and the number of kilograms per hour of, of modern aircraft burns. And you can calculate that the amount of sulfur that one of those just a conventional, you know, 787 or whatever admits is, you know, in a minute, it admits roughly as much sulfur as our experiment would, for example, if we emitted sulfur, which we probably would do at some point, but wouldn't start with. Yeah. So is, is, there, is there a way that you could do geoengineering with planes at normal flight altitudes? Um, like well, piggybacking yeah. on commercial traffic somehow? What do you mean about geoengineering? So, so normal planes do make contrails. Mm-hmm. And con- so, I think the short answer would be no. Hmm. None of this mainstream geoengineering methods have been discussed would make any sense for regular planes at regular flight altitudes. But there's a whole separate set of ideas, which is that um, uh, high clouds can either be warming or heating, depending on the time of day and location and so on. So, um, Sometimes contrails, regular contrails, can actually have a cooling effect because they can be pretty white. Um, uh, and other times they can tend to have more of a warming effect. And planes can, to some extent, control if they make contrails. By I mean, contrail formation depends on local relative humidity, and so you can fly the airplanes through slightly different flight tracks. And so some people, Steve Barrett at MIT, has suggested that um, it might be possible for to slightly adjust the flight tracks of airplanes, not injecting anything differently the airplanes themselves wouldn't change at all you just slightly alter the flight track so you'd make them a little more likely to make contrails during the daytime when they have net cooling effect and a little less likely to make them in the nighttime when they have a net warming effect because they have the infrared warming but there's no sunlight and that overall if you did it might actually provide a little bit of cooling that could you know offset some of the warming that the aviation industry otherwise produces and that's not a crazy idea it turns out uh, and there are people, I think, beginning to think about that. So you tell, I mean, whether or not that's geoengineering is a matter of dispute. Uh, yeah, it's not yeah. yet to my knowledge. And if it was happening, it wouldn't, to be clear, involve any actual material any different than the aircraft now, the same aircraft flying with the same engines. Right. It would just be um, using different flight tracks. 
it's the exact same emissions. But yeah. could, could you do it by modulating the fuel being used? Some people have suggested that perhaps there's these secret mixes of fuel where sometimes they make contrails and sometimes they make less contrails by changing the sulfur content of the fuel. I don't think snow. Well, I'm not an expert. So, so this guy, there are people who, I mean, there, there are people who you know spend their lives studying contrails. I'm not one of them. Mm-hmm. I think it's actually the sulfur content. I don't think has anything to do with it or isn't very important, but there is something that's important regarding whether or not you have cyclic um, uh, uh, organic compounds or straight chains, basically mm-hmm. uh, like benzene style compounds that have, you know, for those of you who have a basic chemistry that have ring structures compared to more straight chain structures and, and biofuels versus fossil fuels have slightly different mixtures. And those things have different ice, different contrail forming properties. And so one of the questions is, is, is airlines are interested in biofuels. Do those, yeah. do those alter the contrail formation? And there's some literature on that. I don't know the details. So in principle, I guess it's right that switching between a biofuel mixture and a conventional aviation kerosene would slightly change contrails, but, um, no aircraft do that. Um, and I guess there's no real reason why they would. Yes. Uh, it's been suggested, uh, by, I don't know if you know, Jim Lee, he's a kind of a chemtrails geoengineering researcher. He really tries to make that case that that is what's actually going on. That is, there's some kind of modification in fuels. And it's actually the early days of the chemtrail conspiracy theory started out with uh, military fuels like JP eight, uh, they thought that that the new types of military fuels that came in back then uh, were actually causing more contrails. So there's, there's certain roots to this uh, the chemtrail theory that go back to the I, fuel idea. Yeah, that that makes sense. Uh, I think, um, but people routinely seem convinced that you know pe- people. I mean, part of this is people look up at their sky and see it filled with persistent contrails and say there's a lot more than there used to be, and they're right because there's a lot more. There's more planes, <laughs> indeed. And. and and they're right to be pissed off. Um, yeah. um, but it's pretty easy to tell by several different methods what those airplanes are. I mean, you can buy a good high-quality telescope and identify airplanes. And you separately can look at um, you know, all the different flight data services that show you what the exact aircraft number is and its track is. So you can put all that together yourself. And so it, it, that's actually pretty hard to break because, again, it's lots of independent providers. So if you suppose there's some massive conspiracy and there's airplanes that aren't tracked, like that, 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 that's a giant conspiracy because air traffic control yeah. depends on people having transponders. So and, and there's independent now um, uh, data gathering on the transponders. So it's really hard to I mean, you'd have to have a conspiracy that just was like this sort of mind numbingly broad conspiracy. Well, that's what they're saying. <laughs> yeah, but well, there uh, are, but but I, does anybody really believe it? There are no such things. I I think the a lot of the people who who are conspiracy theorists genuinely do believe that these things are going on now. And you try to talk them out of it, and you try to explain to them like the the scale of the conspiracy and the practicality of it, and they they just kind of kind of explain these things away in their minds. They, they yeah. think there must be a, a way in which it happened because we know that the government does evil things and therefore they must have figured out a way and the military is years ahead of us in terms of technology. So they, they make these vague uh, yeah. explanations for the, for the theories. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about uh, the Arctic Methane Emergency Group mm-hmm. because uh, the conspiracy theorists, the people who believe in chemtrails, they point to the Arctic Methane Emergency Group 
and they say, here's a bunch of scientists, and they're giving all these dire warnings that uh, all the methane in the Arctic uh, tundra is going to melt, and it's going to be this this runaway event, this uh, uh, this this thing that we can't come back from. Uh, do you think that uh, the Arctic methane emergency groups warnings are valid and how would you kind of characterize them i'd characterize them as overstated so Mm. there certainly are legitimate concerns about both methane and co2 releases from arctic ecosystems as they warm up and to be clear those aren't like concerns at the side those are built into standard estimates about uh, climate change they're built into the carbon cycle models that that inform overall estimates of how the climate will warm And um, there are concerns that those standard models don't include enough knowledge about how much methane or um, CO2 would be released from melting permafrost. But there's now a lot of experiments, which, you know, are interesting. And some of them do seem to show that that, that maybe the number is bigger than we thought. But I have not seen a coherent set of arguments that shows this kind of massive runaway tipping point. Uh, I, 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 I haven't. Um, that's not to say there isn't some argument like that, but I haven't seen it. And at least some of the people in that group, I forget, but about almost a decade ago on the geosharing Google group, I had an exchange with one of the leaders of that group who was very convinced that sea ice would be gone in a decade. And I, I think I offered a bet. I don't think we actually did it. But mm. of course, the sea ice wasn't gone in a decade. And I think the answer is go back and look at how confident they were 10 years ago and then evaluate. Yeah. And uh, it obviously didn't come to pass. I mean, they've been kind of doomsaying no. for quite a while. Oh, exactly. Uh, yeah, and that, I mean, uh, summertime sea ice is absolutely going down. It's going down yeah. faster than some set of early models predicted, and it's very disturbing. But the idea that there's some massive threshold um, doesn't seem to be there in the data. It's interesting, though, that there is kind of like a little subset of the climate scientists who have this uh, – this, this very strong concern, it seems. I mean, how would you characterize it in terms of like overall climate scientists? Well, I think, I think, I mean, like, I mean, scientists are not divorced from politics, and people, many people in the climate science world, certainly including me, would like to see much more action to restrict emissions than there is now, and so the climate science community will sometimes try find ways to talk about the problem that emphasize the risks and emphasize the need for urgent action. And I think talking about um, tipping points, which is a very kind of powerful image, I think not that useful scientifically, um, but talking about tipping points and talking about things like these methane runaways is a, you know, a good way to, to mitigate to, to seems to be a good way to argue for the action. And in fact, almost everybody who's involved in climate science agrees with, which is that we ought to do more to Mm -hmm. cut emissions. Yeah. So it's almost like they're, uh, just kind of exaggerating and putting a focus on this one thing for good in yeah. a way, and that they actually want to uh, you know, take the actions. Yeah, and I, I want to take the actions too, but I don't believe there's a, such a simple argument through Arctic methane. Um, right. So what do you think is actually going to happen with geoengineering <laughs> over the next decade? So? I, I mean, I have no idea. I, I really don't. I think it's it's extraordinarily hard to predict how social how how new technologies like this will emerge or not and and so i do would say over the last year just even just a year or so the level of um interest in solar geoengineering research in elite sort of thought leaders in climate policy and climate science has is increased pretty 
dramatically. So many more people in the big environmental groups or in government agencies who care about climate or in the kind of climate science world now seem to take serious the idea that we should have a serious you know, real research program, you know, more than just a few little university groups like it is now, to understand more about these technologies and their risks and how they be governed. Not to say everybody. There's some really thoughtful people who are great climate scientists and, and activists who, who believe there shouldn't be research. Um, plenty of people do. But I'd say my view is that there's been a pretty strong um, um, movement towards supportive research. And I expect there will be substantially more research, say, five years from now than there is now. So if I was going to guess, I'd say there'd be many more national programs and their national programs would be, you know, they're not going to be huge, but I would expect to see, you know, tens of millions of dollars a year for sure. Uh, and, and maybe hundred class, which would still be, you know, of order one, you know, a few percent, 10 percent to a few percent of the amount now spent for climate science. So I think that's quite a plausible outcome. Then, of course, what happens next depends on the results that research to some level. And I think it's completely possible there will be a research program and there will never be deployment. Um, I think it's very hard to guess where there will be deployment. Um, my, you know, overall guess would be probably yes, but with very little confidence that I or anybody else is good at predicting that future. Do you have like a, a, a lower bound on uh, when you think that it might happen? <clears throat> well, it depends what it is. So because at least if you ask, if you give my, my personal opinion would mm -hmm. be that deployment, that, that we should do lots of research experiments, but experiments are all much too small to, to alter the climate. Um, indoor experiments, outdoor experiments, but most of all modeling, assessment, et cetera. And then, then if there were, you know, if some set of nations, and obviously a big question is like what nations and how they decide and how other nations uh, interact, but but forgetting exactly how those decisions are made, if you ask me as a as a as a scientist, what I would suggest, I would suggest starting very slowly mm. and starting with with uh, deployments that were at the level of less than a tenth of a watt per square meter of radiative forcing globally, which would still allow us to learn a lot about unexpected. Um, um, responses, not responses of the climate itself, but responses of stratospheric aerosols or of, of um, or if you're doing cirrus thinning or, or marine clouds. And in all those cases, you learn a lot more about efficacy and side effects by doing that. And, and I think it makes sense to do that for like a decade. So, you know, I think you could argue that it would make sense to begin doing something like that, you know, within less than two decades from now. Uh, that would still be before there was large scale deployment. Would the would the effects be measurable? Would you be doing it on such a small scale? Would you be able to tell that it's working? Um, you'd be able to. Well, working is, is a multi-dimensional thing. You doing wouldn't something. Be able to see the climate effects, but you would be able to see. Let's say for stratospheric aerosols, you'd absolutely be able to see the change in stratospheric aerosols. You'd be able to measure the change, what we call radiative mm -hmm. forcing, or the change in, in in radiation. You'd be able to measure some subsidiary chemical effects. You'd be able to learn a lot. Um, but you wouldn't directly see the climate response. Yeah. If someone was doing climate engineering now with, with some kind of aerosol injection, would we be able to tell? Is there some test that we could do? Um, I think the big picture answer is yes. I mean, it's interesting trying to scratch your head and think about really weird corner cases that are conceivably concealable. But right. um, 
you know, there are there's now a whole series of independent independent, meaning different nations, uh, different scientific authorities have lots of different instruments that measure aerosols in different ways in the stratosphere and the troposphere, et cetera. And so uh, and we measure both the amount of aerosols, but then there are uh, scientific experiments that measure the specific composition of aerosols that would then be very sensitively detecting any kind of new, strange, unexpected aerosol that was that was emitted. You know, so, for example, there are people measuring aerosol composition in, in both the stratosphere and the troposphere, uh, and they're matching that against models of what we think that composition should be from pollution sources. And if there was a substantial new source, you'd know it right. in the observations. So, you know, is it possible that some one aircraft has gone up and sprayed sulfur in the stratosphere just to say they could? You can't rule that out. It's totally possible. But that had it also presents no real risk and wouldn't really be doing anything with just one aircraft. But I think what you can say is it's not happening at scale because we'd observe it. Right. Yeah, it's very fascinating. Uh, well, uh, I'd like to thank you very, very much for this You're conversation. Welcome. It's been very, very interesting. Uh, and I'm sure lots of other people will find it interesting. Uh, do you have anything else to add to speak to the uh, people who believe in chemtrails or have questions about chemtrails? Um, sure. I mean, to speak to people who, who believe in chemtrails, because there are people who clearly are really well-intentioned, who care about the world they're mm -hmm. living, who are worried about their government lying to them. And and I think um, I'd say focus on real problems. There are all sorts of things that governments are doing that um, need oversight, that are wrong. Uh, and that's true, I think, whether you're on the left or right. Um, I think in almost any political position you have, we ought to be doing a better job on climate. Well, there's a big range of different people's views about what better is. And um, the, the, you don't have to trust government. What you should trust is individuals. So, so don't place your trust in government, but but place your trust in individuals. And if you really believe there's a conspiracy like chemtrails, and you think through what it would actually take in terms of supply chain to do it, I think you can't avoid the fact that that you come up with the idea that there will be tens of thousands of people involved. And what you're trusting is not the goodwill of the U.S. government or any other government. What you're trusting is that it, that if there's tens of thousands of, of, of your fellow citizens who potentially know a terrible secret in a world where people have cell phones and easy communication, you just they're just not all going to be secret. And even if there's the idea that there's you know a threat of, of, of you know a threat of their death by some agency that wants to keep a secret, we know that people are willing to risk their lives to uh, mm -hmm. to 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 expose secrets um, and. Uh, risk their careers and lives to expose secrets. We have lots of examples of that. Some of them maybe you may or may not agree with, but it's clear that people will do that. And so the reason that you should not believe in this conspiracy theory is that it's just not plausible that tens of thousands of your fellow citizens would all do something that was either pointless or terrible, and none of them would use easy tools at hand like cell phones or release of electronic records to tell. And you know, look at the kind of information that has been released. So we now, you know, through the various WikiLeaks things, we have release of all sorts of top secret uh, uh, um, communications traffic from U.S. Uh, intelligence uh, gathering and 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 um, diplomatic missions. And uh, uh, I'm not defending or, or making any comment on whether or not those releases were a good thing. But the fact is, people do leak, and and you just. It's just not plausible that that many people, that with that many people involved, you wouldn't have some of them who would do the right thing. And therefore, it's not happening. And if it's not happening, what I hope you who do believe in it will do is 
think seriously about other useful things to do to help your community, whatever way you like, whether you're on the right or the left, help a community live in a better world. And also, and this is more personal, I think there's a way in which spreading hateful language and hate on the internet, uh, you know, I get, I get absurdly, uh, you know, over the top death threats, anti-Semitic hate, the whole thing. And, um, this does not make the world a better place for anybody. And there's no version of the world that I think any of us really wants to live in that is made better by people spreading those kind of lies and hatred. That's wonderful. Thank you. Completely yeah. agree with all of that. And uh, thank you very much again for this discussion. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Thanks for your...